0: We'll turn first to 1 Corinthians, actually let's read Romans first, Romans 6 verses 1 through 11, and then we'll turn to 1 Corinthians, two, reading from two separate uh, chapters tonight and two parts of 1 Corinthians 15. We'll read the answers together on page 23, the back of our hymnal for our catechism, Lesson tonight, Romans 6. The apostle here begins to apply the very clear gospel of justification by faith that he has just expounded. From the beginning, from the end of chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 6 has been all about being justified by faith. In Christ, and now that begins to be applied in different ways. And Romans chapter 6 is really the first time that the Apostle Paul has a command uh, directly to the people of God and how they ought to live. So, Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Then go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 20. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then, if you would just then look over to verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. The Lord's Day 16, page 23, the back of our hymnals. Let's read the answers together. Why did Christ have to go all the way to death? Because God's justice and truth demanded. Only the death of God's Son could pay for our sin. Why was he buried His burial testifies that he really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death does not pay the debt of our sins. Rather, it puts an end to our sinning and is our entrance into eternal life. What further advantage do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old selves are crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may dedicate ourselves as an offering of gratitude to him. Why does the creed add, he descended into hell? To assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Christ, my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Providentially, we're at the same exact place uh, in the catechism as we're going through a workbook as our high school catechism class meets in the mornings. So this morning, we were talking about these very things, these very issues, going through these questions and, and answers. And one of the questions was posed, uh, why is it that uh, people are able to make jokes about this terrible, awful reality of eternal condemnation, and uh, particularly we would be thinking about uh, non-Christians here, although uh, sometimes even Christians allow themselves to think in in cavalier ways about this doctrine. And uh, the answer was given by one of the students, wonderfully so, and uh, exactly right, that they there are people who do not know how serious this reality is. And thus, uh, they make jokes about it. I don't know if you remember uh, when 97.9 on the FM dial switched over to a Christian radio station or the, the farewell song of the rock and roll station, which I, you know, I like a little rock and roll now and then, but the, the farewell song of the rock and roll station was... Highway to Hell. In other words, uh, go ahead Christians, take our FM station and play whatever you're going to play. But this is where we stand. And of course that song sort of celebrates the kind of of lifestyle that would say, I'm going to do what I want. I may be going to hell, but I know I'll have a lot of my friends with me. Maybe you've even seen that on a bumper sticker, which is another thing. shows just how flippantly people think, About uh, the reality of eternal condemnation. Something that I appreciate much more uh, are the atheists who are extremely committed to their views and uh, committed to the things that uh, that they're proclaiming that there is nothing after this life. uh, This is all that there is, right? We're all fizzing stardust. We're were accidents that have uh, come about through time, plus matter, plus chance. There's nothing beyond this. There's no God, there's no eternal destiny. And something that you see, those who wrestled with that the most tended to be brought to the, the lowest place of despair. That really, if you break it down in those terms, that there really is nothing they come to a place where all of a sudden you can't establish a moral law. You can't say that there is right and that there is wrong. You can't say that there is purpose and meaning in life. And and thus, the heart, uh, the, the cry of the heart becomes everything is vanity. Nothing, everything is meaningless. There's no meaning in anything. Thus, the only thing that we can do is we can seek pleasure, we can seek power. And that, of course, left many authors in... Uh, The lowest possible place. But this is a serious doctrine. And there's great comfort in this doctrine for the Christian. To be reminded that because of faith in Christ, we will never go where Christ went. Now, we're expounding on the creed here, and and this was the most controversial phrase the time of the Reformation in regards to the Apostles' Creed because uh, from some time in the first several centuries of the church, there started to be this, this belief held that after Christ was crucified... Uh, he went to hell. There are various reasons or various explanations that people would would give. Some even offered that Jesus was continuing to bear the wrath of God. Some said that, that Jesus was going there to proclaim victory. But the reformers with one voice said, no, you stick to the text of scripture. Jesus Christ says on the cross to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And when he says on the cross, it is finished Jesus cannot lie, he's perfectly God, and the price was paid. And so the descent into hell needs to be understood a certain way, but uh, the reformers decided that it is really a, a, a huge undertaking, and perhaps... Uh, their sense of tradition was such that we can't do something like change the creed, so we'll understand it, we'll teach our people to understand and confess it this way, that when we say Christ descended into hell, that we're speaking about all of his sufferings, all that he did in his life leading up to the cross, and when he hung there on the cross, undergoing that torment of soul, that anguish, what he was doing was experiencing the exact wrath of God that would have sent all believers to eternal condemnation. So we say that when Jesus was on the cross, in that sense, even if not spatially or geographically, that he is going to hell for us and the the great exchange and the promise that we will never go where he went. Wonderful, comforting Blessed uh, promises and truths. We will never go where Jesus went for us. So we'll take a look at these things uh, and together. And we'll look at probably most of the questions and answers. And touch on them as we go. The first thing that we see is that Christ's death was necessary and it was real. Those are those first two short questions and answers. His death was necessary and real. He had to go to the farthest reaches of the curse, right? He had to atone for all of our misgivings, all of our forsakings of God. He directly addresses our malady at its source and if you want to summarize the problem with the human condition in our fallenness, in our sinfulness, the summary is death. That's really the crux of the matter. We are decaying, subject to the curse, headed towards death. We were not made for corruption, as we talked about a couple of weeks, but that is uh, our state in the curse. And Jesus addresses our malady by going to its source. He goes to the farthest reaches. Now imagine that Jesus does not die. All of a sudden, we don't have the comfort of Christ In death, the experience of life for the believer is the constant reminder that Jesus Christ shared in flesh and blood, he shared the curse, he shouldered the curse, he experienced all that we experienced, he was tempted, he was tried, he remained without sin, he was perfect. Everywhere that we go, we know that Jesus has gone there. And of course, the end of the road for human beings is the grave. Uh, to be lowered into the grave as our loved ones watch. Of course, the saddest moments of our lives are, are these moments that we think about. But if we think, or if it were such that Jesus did not go all the way to death, all of a sudden, we have one area, which is not a little area, it's huge, it's glaring, one area where we don't have the comfort of Christ. I love the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, that when our bodies lie in the grave, our physical bodies, though our souls are in heaven, the souls of the redeemed are brought immediately into the presence of Christ to experience full glory and freedom from sin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, their bodies which rest in the grave are still united to Christ. Our bodies matter to God. And it's that way, and we have that comfort because Christ went all the way to death. In order to vanquish death, he had to die, and thus he did. Christ's death was necessary, and it was real. It was necessary, and it was real. Secondly, this, the believer is dead to sin. We're switching up in the order of the questions and answers later on. What further advantage, what further benefit do we gain from Christ's death on the cross? And and again, I know I I say it every time they come up, but I love these questions. So practical. What advantage, what benefit do I get from Christ dying on the cross? Well, the old self is crucified with him. Uh, The old self is that in us where the guilt and the power of sin and death reigns. In Christ and because of his work on the cross, sin loses its claim on us. You think of it as dominions, as kingdoms. Uh, Before the power of Christ's death is applied unto us, we dwell in the kingdom of sin. Sin reigns over us and when the power of Christ's death is applied to the believer, the power of sin is removed, we are transferred to the kingdom of Christ's reign. So when Christ died on the cross, it was as if our old nature, our old self, hung there with him. And in those moments, the torturous agonies of hell were applied to our old nature. So the old self is crucified, and this is what Romans 6 is driving home for us. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Just think about that phrase a little bit this week. And it makes the most sense that what uh, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is saying there, that he's assuming that the death he's talking about is a death that's experiencing the fullness of the wrath of God. When Christ dies as a perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice, at the moment of his death, his death, uh, sin is paid for, right? Because he was so perfect, there was, no, there was nothing else that the wrath of God had left to pour out on him. Human beings who die outside of Christ, they die and that is uh, in some sense a payment for their sin, but then there is an eternity of condemnation and torment that they need to undergo. But Christ's death was different. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 7 of Romans 6. One who has died the way that Christ died has been freed from sin. And that's what he's saying. He's saying your old self was nailed to the cross with Christ and that was a perfectly atoning, propitiatory death. Thus... The old self is, done, is gone. It's done. The price has been paid. And so he says in verse 12, just after what we read tonight, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. You think about if we've been transferred out of the kingdom of the reign of sin and we're living now in the kingdom of Christ and his reign, the freedom that he gives to us because of the price that has been paid, it's like we take all of our goods and and everything that we have we cross the border we go through customs to go back into this kingdom of darkness and sin and death and we go to the palace of this kingdom of sin and death and we present all that we have and paul's saying this is absurd for you to live this way and this is why he's constantly saying think about yourself this way as united to christ think about yourself this way as made new under the power of the Spirit. Don't present yourself as, uh, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Go to the palace of the kingdom to which you belong and present yourself as a loving sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God. This is the gospel logic, if you will, of the Christian life, called to reckon this way to think this way to this is a daily practice for us to preach to ourselves that this is who we are made new in Christ couple of examples Colossians 3 Paul says do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator to catch that do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self ...with its practices... ...and have put on the new self... ...which is being renewed in knowledge... ...after the image of its creator. Put on, then... ...as God's chosen ones... ...compassionate hearts... ...kindness, humility, meekness, and patience... ...bearing with one another... ...and if one has a complaint against another... ...forgiving each other... ...as the Lord has forgiven you... ...so you also must forgive. Ephesians 4. This is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So this is gospel logic, as I mentioned, to preach this to ourselves day by day. But it's also good to remember that this is the work of God in us. And I'm thinking about how the catechism uh, applies this logic later on. And in the section regarding the Lord's Prayer... The, the two main things that we are to pray for as Christians are uh, the, the grace of God and the Holy Spirit. When, it, when the catechism defines prayer, it says that we are to ask for God's grace and God's spirit. And that is the way, you think about it, if this is God's work in us, that by the power of God, we put off the old self. By the grace of God, we put off the old self. When we pray for God's grace to be in our lives and when we pray for God's spirit to be given to us in its fullness, then through the power of God, we are more and more enabled to put off the old self and to put on the new. A couple of things to keep in mind. And the first is this. We're called to present ourselves uh, as living sacrifices to God because our old self was, was crucified with Christ. It's important to keep this in mind first. Uh, gospel obedience, that is the obedience of the believer, the obedience of a Christian is not the same thing as legal obedience. It's not the same thing as uh, putting yourself in the shoes of Adam in the Garden of Eden, trying to merit your righteousness before God. It's not the same thing as Paul in the letter of Philippians before, as he's describing his past life, trying to establish his righteousness before God. This is gospel obedience, not the same as legal obedience. And you see, all of our merit is found in Christ. And so God is pleased to accept our works of obedience as pleasing in his sight. Even if what we do is imperfect and it's still tainted by sin and there are problems with it, because God has given his grace to us and we are existing in Christ, God is pleased to call us to more and more die to ourselves, and even in our imperfections, as we trust in Christ, God accepts our work, not as saving, but as pleasing. Right? So in Colossians 1.10, We pray that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. A life fully pleasing to God. For those who are in Christ by the power of the Spirit, and here's another important distinction, is... Uh, For those who want to establish their own righteousness uh, apart from the gospel, they are living under the covenant of works, which was the whole program of obedience in the Garden of Eden. Do this and you will live. Obey me and you will live, Adam. Don't eat from this tree, the rest of the garden, increase, have dominion. But gospel obedience is obedience within the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is one in which Christ and all of his blessings, all of his merits are freely given to us. So think about it this way. I know that's a little bit technical. Think about it this way. It's like an orphan who is adopted into a household. And think about how absurd it would be or or how much of an uglier picture of adoption it would be if uh, a potential father would um, bring an orphan close to him, not adopt him into his house, but kind of say, I'm going to watch you for a little while and I want you to earn your way into my family. That's, That's the covenant of works. That's trying to establish your own righteousness apart from Christ. The glorious picture of adoption is someone looking at an orphan and saying, you're mine, I'm making you my own, I'm bringing you into my household and I'm going to teach you the ways of the family. This is how members of my family live and act and conduct themselves. I'm going to teach you, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to call you to do things that may be challenging, but I'm going to teach you how members of this family live that is what it means to know god in a covenant of grace it's it's the family names already been given to you the seat at the table has already been given to you and so you may ask so why do i still sin why why, why are we still sort of entangled in this constant battle one theologian says to be dead to sin does not mean sin is dead in us important distinction isn't it We are positionally, because of the gospel, because of Christ, we are dead to sin. But that does not mean that sin is dead in us. There are vestiges, there are remnants of that old self that creep up. We're not under its dominion, we're not under its rule, we're not under its reign, but we are at war with it. You know, in that sense, the war, the battle doesn't even begin until life in Christ begins, does it? That's the start of the battle. Before sin reigns over you and you're enslaved to it. After faith, you do battle with it. This reality, though, that sin is not dead in us, it causes us to stay humble, to stay filled with faith. We trust only in God's grace. Why? Because we know that we're sinners. And we're imperfect and we can fall. It keeps us watchful over our sin. It keeps us prayerful as we know that we are not without danger of falling. And so the same theologian says this, paradoxical though it may sound, though the old man is dead and buried with Christ, yet throughout his whole life in this world, until the very moment of his death, he must constantly fight to put off the old man and to put on the new man in Christ Jesus. We fight, but we do it by faith, and we do it in prayer, asking God to give us grace and the Holy Spirit, because it's by his power. Last point. Tonight the believer has a transformed view of death the believer has a transformed view of death why must we still die a really interesting question and a very valid question that the the catechism poses and it would be perhaps better in terms of our own experience if One is given life and regenerated into spiritual life. God makes us alive together with Christ. We're immediately whisked up to heaven the moment that saving faith is given to us. But it's not that way. And of course that would create all kinds of problems because then there would be no call to live by faith. Without faith it is impossible to please God. God has ordained it so that we would walk through this world realizing the depth of sin from which we were saved. That struggle with sin that we constantly have to go through, the reality of coming back again and again and again to the same problems, to the same fallings and failings, we're realizing more and more the depth of sin from which Christ saved us. So that at the end of our life, those who walk faithfully in obedience to God can do nothing but say, I do not deserve this at all. I'm not even close to deserving God's grace. And then also that God would have the cause of Christ represented in our bodies as those who carry the aroma of Christ to the world because we show it to the world in weakness because we are jars of clay as Paul says we are uh, representations of the weakness of ourselves and yet the power of God we live to the praise of his glorious grace because he has saved us and it's clear that he has saved us and we have not saved ourselves so that's why we still die or at least a couple of the reasons but the great blessing then as we close is that death in Christ has become a servant rather than an enemy. Death has become a servant rather than an enemy. Death is no longer an operation of the wrath of God for a Christian. For the Christian, it is not part of the satisfaction for sin. It can't be because all of our sin, past, present, and future, were paid for at the cross. Completely done away with. Jesus says it is finished. So for those who die in Christ, it is not a satisfaction for their sin. It becomes something else. And that creates this tension where death is still the, the enemy that we face, it's still the one that is sort of reigning in this present evil age. It's still something that gives us immense pain and anguish and anxiety and questionings, but through the power of God and by the grace of God, he allows your view of death to be transformed. My favorite lullaby to sing, and I'm sure almost everyone in the world think I'm terribly morbid, but when... Uh, My daughter asks me to sing this one. I love it. There's one verse that goes, Teach me, dear Lord, so that I dread the grave as little as my bed. Teach me to die that so I may rise glorious at the judgment day. You see, death is less a manifestation of the wrath of God than it is a glorious entrance into the fellowship of our Savior. This means that you have to apply that truth to everything that's connected to death, not just our physical death, but our sufferings, which are a piece of the corruption of the curse of death. Our sufferings are no longer to be considered in Christ as a manifestation of the wrath of God, but are ways that we enter into the sufferings of Christ, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. We know Christ. As we suffer with him on the path of obedience, we learn about the path our Savior walked in order to save us. It's an entering into knowing him more. Even though some of our sufferings in Christ are chastisement for sin, we must see a difference in that as well. Chastisement is not punishment for sin or not satisfaction for sin. One is an operation of God's wrath, the other of his paternal love, right? He's a father teaching us the way of the family. Punishment ends in destruction. Chastisement is for our good. So even when God is working out the kinks in us and filing away all of the impurities, he's doing it for our good, whereas satisfaction for sin is ending in destruction. So we see that death is not a satisfaction for sin, and that death, finally then, is a passage to eternal life. It's a passage to eternal life. Death in Christ is that final deliverance of the life that God has wrought in us. One theologian puts it this way. For as in that hour of death they cling by faith. That's the Christians, faithful believers, Cling by faith to their crucified Lord, they know that it is not the retributive wrath of God that is upon them in all the agonies of death, but his elective love, delivering them from death into life and beckoning them home to the house of many mansions. By faith, they may truly die in peace. John eleven twenty five, 25, just before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he says to his sister, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And the question for us, brothers and sisters, is, do I believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that tonight? That death is no longer a terrorizing Lord over us. It is the gateway into that blessedness of seeing the treasure of our souls. Just like we talked about this morning. Where we are called to run with fervor towards Christ. Because our final gaining of him is the resurrection. Glorification. Knowing him in eternal life. We run and because we are running it transforms the way that we see that pathway to being with Christ. Death is no longer a terrorizing Lord over us. It has been changed into a servant for our good. It is better to depart and be with Christ, Paul says. This is our passage into eternal life with Christ. And thus we know As we believe the words of Christ, that all those who believe in him will never die. Though he die, yet shall he live. As we cling to these words in faith and we believe them, thus we know that this life is not in vain. Thus we know that we are not to be more pitied than all others, which we would be if the resurrection were not true. Those willingly entering into suffering for Christ... In this life, which would be your one chance for pleasure, your one chance for happiness and joy, we throw that to the side, focusing on Christ and his glory, and living for others, and living in sacrificial love. We know that it is not in vain. And so in 1 Corinthians 15 at the end it says stand firm, stand firm in this faith, stand firm in these truths, stand firm in the conviction we have to live according to this truth because not your work in the Lord is not in vain. It teaches you to number your days, doesn't it, so that you may get a heart of wisdom. It teaches you to live life backwards, live life backwards from your death to today knowing that it is not in vain and being uh, transformed into the ability to look into that end that we are all facing and rather than seeing it as a terrorizing Lord because of what Christ has done, going to the edge of death and going through and vanquishing it. It's been changed from a Lord, a terrorizing Lord to a servant. May we live with that kind of faith in Christ and confidence May we prepare for that day each and every day. May we not sort of push it to the side and push our relationship with our God to the side, our faithfulness to Christ, because we do that, we get in all kinds of trouble. But may we live with a deep conviction of these things so that when that day comes, we are familiar with the grace of God and his loving embrace so that we may know in confidence that those who die in the Lord are summoned up to their eternal home. And what a great and glorious promise that is, and we thank God for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth and for this comfort that you give to us. May you prepare us to die well,